welcome to Dark Gate Horror Podcast Episode 15, which is a continuation of our discussion of zombies from the last episode. This podcast will review Stephen King's fairly recent novel, The Cell, which was released in January 2006. I'll be discussing the full details of the novel, so this is a spoiler alert. Cell is an apocalyptic horror novel concerning a New England artist struggling to reunite with his young son after a mysterious signal broadcast over the global cell phone network turns masses of his fellow humans into telekinetic, hive-minded zombies. The plot is such. The Pulse. It is October 1st, and a struggling young artist named Clayton Riddle has finally caught a break, which is good news for him, his estranged wife, and their young son, Johnny. He's come to Boston and landed a lucrative comic book deal with Dark Horse Comics. As he waits in line at the Boston Comet ice cream truck for a celebratory treat, somebody, somewhere, triggers the pulse, a signal sent out over the global cell phone network which instantly strips any cell phone user of their reason and humanity, locking them into a merciless, homicidal frenzy. In minutes, civilization crumbles as the masses of phoner victims attack each other and any unaltered normals in view. This opening scene is the most thrilling in the book. People start jumping from the upper stories of the Four Seasons Hotel across the street, and a string of ever-larger explosions rock the city. One of Boston's open-top tourist duck boats, now piloted by a raving lunatic, crushes the ice cream truck. A swarm of police and fire vehicles arrive at the hotel only to be hit by the jumpers. Witnessing all of this with Clay is a short, mustached man named Tom McCourt. Tom and Clay are attacked by a knife-wielding phoner, but Clay manages to knock the man to the ground and keep him there long enough for a policeman to arrive and shoot the attacker dead. The cop and his fellow officers are then summoned to Logan Airport. Already making the connection, Clay warns the departing policeman not to use any cell phones. Clay and Tom make their way to Clay's hotel. They are then joined by a teenage girl named Alice Maxwell, whom Clay saves from another attacking phoner. The three of them decide they have to get out of Boston, as the chaos all right outside is already getting worse. They head out on foot for Tom's house, located in the Boston suburb of Malden. While the city burns to the ground behind them, the journey proves not only to be successful, but almost peaceful. The Pulse victims have all mysteriously dropped out of sight. Flocks and Flock Killers King introduces the reader to a zombie mythology, which plays out for the duration of the book as the main characters learn about the zombies and how they can be defeated. The next morning, the trio discovers that the phoners, while still engaging in spasms of violence, have reappeared and begun flocking, migrating in lockstep in front of Tom's house, only to disappear once again as night falls. They are also beginning to regain a semblance of intelligence. Three of them raided Tom Vegetable Garden. Despite these new developments, Clay is unalterably determined to return home to Maine to his son Johnny. Having no better alternatives, the other two come with him, although they, are sh- they stock up on fire. The trio begin their tracks solely at night across New England, having fleeting encounters with other normie survisor- survivors and catching disturbing hints about the activities of the phoners, who are still attacking non-phoners on sight. Crossing the border into New Hampshire, they find themselves at the Gaydon Academy, a prep school with one remaining teacher and one pupil, a very bright boy named Jordan. The two of them show their visitors where the local phoner flock goes at night, packing its components into the academy's stocker field like sardines, switched off until morning. The phoners have become a hive mind and are developing psychic and telekinetic abilities. The five of them decide they have no choice but to destroy the flock before its powers grow even stronger. The sleep that follows is filled with horrific dreams about being surrounded by hundreds of the phoners who telepathically broadcast a grim threat in Latin. 
They meet a disheveled black man wearing a Harvard University hooded sweatshirt, then approaches, bringing their death with them. Waking from this dream, the heroes compare notes and dub him the Raggedy Man. A new flock then appears and surrounds their residence. The trapped normies open the front door to face the flock's metaphorical spokesperson, the Raggedy Man. After the showdown, the trio, joined by Jordan, head north to a spot in Maine called Cashwack. En route, they learn that as flock killers, they have been marked by the phoners as untouchables, to be shunned by other normals. They are further disheartened to learn that phoners now have recruited normals to guard while they sleep. Clay finds a note in his house in which Johnny relays that Clay's wife was turned into a phoner on October 1st, and that his son survived for several days before he and the other normies near him headed north to Cashwack, tricked by the phoners into thinking it was a safe haven. Clay is still intent on finding his son and joins the other trio of flock killers. Tom and Jordan plans to head west, avoiding the ceremonial executions the phoners clearly have planned. Cashwack. Ray secretly gives Clay a cell phone and phone number, telling him to use it when the time is right and shoots himself. Cashwack is revealed to be the site of a half-assembled county fair. The travelers notice that more and more of the phoners are behaving erratically and breaking out of flock. Some, but not all, of these strugglers are promptly killed. Jordan theorizes that a rogue computer program was the source of the pulse, and while it is still out there somewhere pumping its signal into the battery-powered cell phone network, it has become corrupted with a computer worm, infecting the new phoners with a mutated version of the pulse which struck on October 1st. Night falls, and the phoners lock the group in the fair's exhibition hall. Now, I will refrain from revealing the showdown at Cashwack. It's exciting, and due to the ambiguity of the ending, I want you to determine what the resolution means to you. I enjoyed this novel very much, even though, as I've mentioned before, I don't like zombie stories all that much. This novel has well-developed characters, and throughout the book, King introduces pieces of a mythology, so you know, or you never know more than the characters do at the time. The result is highly satisfying and makes the characters feel much more real. One of King's strong points has always been his ability to develop characters in a way that makes you feel connected to them. Let's talk about the literary significance and criticism. While the book generally received good reviews from critics, some fans have expressed, especially through the customer review system of Amazon.com, that Cell is too much like King's older work. While some readers compare it to King's previous apocalyptic novel, The Stand, in which a super flu wipes out most of humanity, leaves the survivors to deal with a supernatural threat. That being said, many professional critics have disagreed with this comparison. Stephen King scholar Bev Vincent has said that it's a dark, gritty, pessimistic novel in many ways and stands in stark contrast to the fundamental optimism of The Stand. Furthermore, The Stand is a book laden with religious symbolism and good and evil explicitly defined, whereas Cell features a straightforward attempt to survive in a world gone wrong. Fans have expressed disappointment in the ambiguity of the ending. The characters in the book speculate on possible origins of the pulse signal, but no definite source is ever located. The novel never strays from the point of view of the main characters, and furthermore, the reader is never allowed to see what goes on in the outside world, as television broadcasts are wiped out wherever they go, and the remaining normies don't turn on the radio in fears that the pulse might exist in some form even there. Additionally, the open-ended fate of protagonist Clay Riddle and his son frustrated others. In response to this second criticism, Stephen King posted a personal response on his website. Based on the information given in the third, or the final third of Cell, I'm thinking about the reversion back toward the norm of the later phone crazies. It seems pretty obvious to me that things turned out well for Clay's son, Johnny. I don't need to tell you this, do I? Everyone's interpretation is going to be different, but I think the mark of a good author or work is that you take the story with you and you can believe what you want to believe. Other fans felt it was one of 
the better books King has written in years and a return to the grisly horror that made him famous in the first place. Prior to Cell, King's most recent books have been a short story collection called Everything's Eventual, the completion of the Dark Tower series, and the subversive pulp crime novel Colorado Kid. The world has not seen a standalone Stephen King horror novel since From a Buick 8, published in 2002. There are allusions and references to other works. First, let's talk about possible Dark Tower references. It is unknown whether or not Cell is actually part of the Dark Tower storyline, but there are some speculated references. The hero's comic book character, the Dark Wanderer, Ray Damon, resembles Roland Deschain of the Dark Tower series. In addition to sharing the initials RD, both men use large 45 Colt revolvers as weapons. Clay's wife, Sharon, referred to the character as Clay's apocalyptic cowboy. Another possible analog mentioned as being in the comic is the wizard Flack, Randall Flagg. Late in the novel, the protagonists stumble across a half-assembled carnival, which in Includes a children's ride called Charlie and the Choo Choo, a reference to the third and fourth books in the series. The unincorporated main township of TR90, which features in this book, has also featured in Dreamcatcher and the Dark Tower-related Bag of Bones. Many numbers in the book add up to 19, a number that was cited as particularly significant in the later three novels of the Dark Tower series. The number on the plane that crashes into a building at the beginning of the novel and the year Gatlin Academy was founded are two examples of this. And some other references. The book makes reference to the Panic Rat, which is a motif of King's work to showcase fear as an imaginary creature feeding away at the thoughts of the lead character. Clayton experiences this continually throughout the book in fear of his son's fate. This is previously mentioned in Gerald's Game, in which the lead female character, Jessie Burlingame, experiences the bag or the panic bug as she's handcuffed to a bed. The enigmatic reference Dodge had a good time too, made by a traveler when Lawrence Welk and his champagne music makers can be heard playing baby elephant waltz, is a reference to Dodge division of the Chrysler Corporation, now Daimler Chrysler. It was the Lawrence Welk show's in-studio sponsor early on and was later replaced by Geritol. The concept of an auditory signal that can destroy a person's brain is very similar to the concepts put forth in Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. King also references Stevenson in the book when the character of Jordan calls him a god. The Raggedy Man is the name of a poem by American poet James Whitcomb Riley. The book is co-dedicated to film director George A. Romero and sci-fi horror writer Richard Matheson. Romero has worked with King on numerous occasions, including Creepshow and the feature film version of The Dark Half, and is most famous for his Living Dead horror series, of course you know, which features swarms of zombies overwhelming human civilization. Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead are both directly mentioned in Cell. In much the same vein as Cell, Matheson's novel I Am Legend depicts a lone normal waging a grim post-apocalyptic battle against an army of hideously altered former humans. In the story, King makes a reference to Juniper Hill, a mental hospital, which he used in another stories as well, such as It. Clay's son goes to a middle school in Chamberlain, Maine. This is the town where Carrie took place. And in Carrie, a prediction is made that Chamberlain would grow dead. Here we see Chamberlain is still alive. Similar plot devices in other novels and movies. In the September 30, 1994 episode of the TV series The X-Files, titled Blood, which is episode 203, a small town in Pennsylvania, USA, sees a spree of random killings as people go into fear-driven berserk rages after receiving hypnotic messages urging them to kill via LCD readouts of various electronic devices such as scanners, elevators, ATMs, cell phones, clocks, etc., and television screens. An illegal pesticide used on the area is also involved in triggering the fear response. 
1996 X-Files novel Fear adapted the episode as a novelization for young readers. As discussed in the last episode, the 2002 British horror movie 28 Days Later featured a very similar plot. The outbreak of the rage virus caused the majority of the populace, in this case of the British Isles, to turn into homicidal, blood-crazed maniacs that go in a killing spree, while motley groups of uninfected survivors try to reach the supposedly safe sanctuary of the city of Manchester. By and by, the infected are dying of starvation. This movie, in turn, has similarities with King's work, The Stand, or at the start of the movie, one of the protagonists wakes up from a coma in a hospital in London only to find he's alone in a deserted city. And a film adaptation. Dimension Films has brought the film rights to this book and will produce a film directed by Eli Roth of Hostel and Cabin Fever for a 2008 release. Says Roth about his approach to the film. Such a smart take on the zombie movie. I am so psyched to do it. I think you can really do almost a cross between Dawn of the Dead remake with a Roland Emmerich approach, for lack of a better reference, where you show it happening all over the world. When the pulse hits, I want to see it everywhere. In restaurants, in movie theaters, at sports events, all the places that people drive you crazy when they're talking on your cell phones. I see total Armageddon. People going crazy killing each other almost at once, all over the world. Cars smashing into each other, people getting stabbed, throats getting ripped out. The one thing I always wanted to see in zombie movies is the actual moment the plague hits, and not just in one spot, but everywhere. Usually get flashes of it happening around the world on news broadcasts, but you never actually get to experience it happening everywhere. Then, as the phone crazies start to change and mutate, the story gets pared down to a story about human survival in the post-apocalyptic world ruled by phone crazies. I'm so excited. I wish the script were ready right now so I could start production. But it'll get written, or at least a draft will, while I'm doing Hostel 2, and then I can go right into it. It should feel like the ultraviolet event movie. Well, I'm excited that Eli is going to be directing this because he really has a great take with his films, and I think he could do a really great job with this one. And some trivia. As in many of King's works, the book features both telepathy and telekinesis as particularly crucial plot devices among the characters as the phoners have these abilities when gathered together in large groups. Both subjects are also focal points of King's other works, The Stand, Carrie, Firestarter, and The Tommyknockers. And I'd like to share a review with you. It's kind of lengthy, but I really liked it. And and rarely do I get the opportunity to review a horror novel which is well-liked by the critics at the New York Times Book Review. Invasion of the Ringtone Snatchers by Janet Maslin, New York Times Book Review, January 23, 2006. Life is kind to the writers of horror stories these days. All they have to do is sit back and watch. So Stephen King's Cell invokes the events of September 11, 2001, the kind of disaster in which clothes floated out of the sky like big snow. It echoes the upheaval caused by last year's monstrous tsunami in Hurricane Katrina. It reflects the violent anarchy to be found in Iraq. It shivers at the threat of bioterrorism and the menace of computer technology. And it savages the ubiquitous handheld telephones of the title. As this novel sees the world of cell phone communications, it's a tower of babble made of cobwebs. Here comes Mr. King, ending his non-sabbatical from writing straightforward horror fiction to blow those cobwebs away. Cell begins with a big graphic jolt. On a pleasant October afternoon in downtown Boston, beware any scene featuring an innocent ice cream truck. Everything suddenly goes crazy. People attack strangers, break things, and speak in wild gibberish, all as a consequence of the brain zapping that the book calls the pulse. It has been delivered via cell phone. Only the Luddites and phone phobes are safe. So far, so good, although it could have been better had Mr. King not agreed to promote cell with ringtone 
or cell phone ringtones being sold by his publisher. Anyone who uses a cell phone, Mr. King does not, has been zombified. In a book dedicated to two pioneers in this thematic area, Richard Matheson and George Romero, Mr. King creates a Night of the Living Dead scenario with a technological twist, except these people aren't dead, explains a still sentient Boston police officer, unless we help them, that is. Mr. King spends part of Cell contemplating the essential darkness of human nature. Stripped of societal constraints, the Pulse people begin to create a hieronymous Bosch tableau of hellish depravity. They can be found reeling, staggering, biting their own mothers, or fighting over Twinkies. The author's mouthpiece, a comic book artist named Clayton Riddle, finds time to take the long view about this disintegration and comeuppance. Three days ago, we not only ruled the world, we had survivor's guilt about all the other species we'd wiped out in our climb to the nirvana of round-the-clock cable news and microwave popcorn, Clay observes. Now we're the flashlight people. But once the pyrotechnics of the pulse are over and the accidents from Boston begins, much of Cell is a literal trudge. Clay is thrown together with a few de facto comrades, including a teenage girl named Alice who gives the book its Lewis Carroll aspect. Together they begin heading north, road by road, town by town. Clay is from Maine. Where else? This is a Stephen King novel. For not-so-imaginative motivation, the book gives him a son named Johnny, who may have been using a cell phone when the blight struck, or may still be able to be saved. The Cell from Hell premise gives the story an instantly powerful hook. But there are other times when the book threatens to become all hook and no fish. Though Cell is not unduly long, it moves slowly and somewhat repetitively towards its highway of horrors. And Mr. King is in no hurry to build upon the pulse idea after he has deployed its initial shock value. When the book's overview begins to emerge, though, it justifies the dawdling. The zombies evolve in interesting ways. Midway through the book, Mr. King takes the story to a private school that has become a post-pulse campground, and reveals the telepathic patterns that have begun to shape collective behavior. It's the author's little joke that these messages are delivered via the worst, easy-listening songs he can name, to the point where Lawrence Welk and You Light Up My Life become part of the apocalypse. Who is this guy? Alice asks, upon hearing Michael Bolton. Honey Bunch, one of the story's elders, tells her, you don't want to know. By this private school midpoint, the book has regained its initial steam. The school's head, Charles Arday, is named for the former internet mogul whose Hard Case Crime Series published The Colorado Kid, the experiment in detection which was Mr. King's last effort to stay unbusy. Now the behavior of the undead starts to change quickly. And Mr. King's visions of shared thinking, flocking, parodying, and telekinesis are not all that far removed from the real perils of internet linkage and synchrosity. It's like being nudged by a hand only inside your brain, one character explains, describing an all-too-familiar cyber sensation. It's the final round that's worth the whole game. Mr. King suggests a form of salvation that could exist only in an eerie, computer-connected, and privacy-free world. Cell displays the author's habit of beginning with a real-world idea and following it into a hazy dreamscape, only to re-emerge from the vortex when his cautionary tale is over. In that sense, and in the visceral impact of its dis- descriptions, out comes an old man's eye with a loose, globbity, plopping sound, This is a traditional King narrative studded with alarmingly signs of the time. To indicate that the author's ambitions exceed repeating himself, Cell ends with a facsimile of 12 handwritten passages on Mr. King's next and very different-sounding novel, Lysi's Story, scheduled for release in October. Unlike Cell ringtones, this is a welcome and legitimate form of promotion. Cell is graced by another gorgeous cover by Mark Stutzman, who translates Mr. King's thoughts into spectacular pulp illustrations. 
The cover depicts a smashed phone, an eerie figure, a burning city, and what looks like a crushed cup from popular coffee shop chain. Watch out, Starbucks. You don't want Mr. King imagining your worst-case scenario. The link will be in the show notes. The song of the night is Bordeaux by The Shapes. Check them out at myspace.com slash theshapesband. Enjoy!
And that's it for this episode, friends. Again, I'm sorry for the extended absence. I've been working on a few side projects and doing a lot of research and enjoying summertime. I'm looking forward to autumn, my favorite time of year. Although here in LA, the leaves don't change and the weather doesn't change all that much. But it's um, autumn is my favorite time. And I'm very much looking forward to it. I have a few great new projects that I'll be releasing in the next couple months. And, you know, podcasts will be produced more frequently now that summer is over. I hope you're enjoying what's left of your summer, that you have a great Labor Day weekend. And please let me know if you have any podcast ideas you'd like me to discuss or work on. Coming up over the next few months, I have episodes on the film Final Destination, a discussion of witches, HP Lovecraft, Universal Monsters, among others. I hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.